I am uh, really excited this morning as we start our first ever pastoral residency. Um, a good friend of mine, Dave Lomas, is with us this morning and next week and midweek for a lecture to let you just know a little bit around Dave. Dave Lomas is the lead pastor of a church in San Francisco called Reality San Francisco, which is part of a family of churches in the U.S. and in England. Dave and his wife Ashley, along with a small group of people, planted Reality SF in January 2010 with a real simple vision to cultivate a community following Jesus, seeking renewal in the city of San Francisco. Dave is also the author of The Truest Thing About You, a book that he came from his first three years of pastoring Reality San Francisco. His favorite work, however, is being husband to Ashley. Ashley wrote that part, huh? Yes, she did. Daddy to his children, Juniper and Noah, and he has the cutest kids in the world, and a puppy parent to Prince the Golden Doodle. And this part of the, his bio I added, he lists as one of his favorite people, me. <laughs> it's an honor and privilege to have Dave come to challenge us, to teach us, and to uh, encourage us as we go through this, uh, this week together. So welcome, my friend Dave Lomas. Thanks, Tom. That's great. Hi, everyone. Good morning. It's really good to be with you all this, uh, this week. I get to be here uh, this week and, uh, as Dale said, a midweek lecture, which will be fun, and then next week. So uh, we're going to talk a lot about um, sex and sexuality. So this is what Dale invited me to do. So send all emails to him uh, directly, <laughs> not to me. <clears throat> I was just told to say this stuff. Um, before we get started, I just want to say this place is beautiful. Like, this building is absolutely beautiful. Last time I was here, we were in the other building, and Dale brought me here and showed me the vision, and I, he'd been sending me pictures along the way, and it's really cool to be in here. Um, and, um, and Dale and I used to serve at Reality San Francisco together. I think you all know that. And um, one of the things that we did when he served at Reality San Francisco is we did a uh, a God and Sex series, and we learned a lot about that as pastors on staff there, about how to talk about this topic um, in, a, in, a, in, the, in the Bay Area, um, how to exposit the scriptures and exposit culture, because you're supposed to do both. And so what I want to do is hope to impart some of those learnings with you today and midweek lecture, which you can invite, invite friends to, and then next Sunday. Um, but I, I want to start by reading a scripture, but before I do, I just want to let you know that... Um, I would imagine at some point uh, over the next week, you will be scandalized. And just, it will happen. Just, um, and some of you today will be scandalized by some of the quotes I use or some of the things I say. Why are we talking about this at church? This, does, this kind of conversation does not belong at church. And I think, I think it very much does. It needs to happen in, the, in a church context. We need a worldview around what the Bible says and how we're reoriented around what Jesus says about, about sex and sexuality. Get reoriented in that way. Um, but also, we, we're, we live in the very, very, very liberal Bay Area. Um, very, very progressive, very liberal. And um, there's a book called Why Liberalism Has Failed by Patrick Deneen. And uh, this, is, um, uh, this is, was on Obama's uh, favorite book list. And so if, if, I need, if that gives me any credit at all to quote a book that Obama um, liked, there it is. But he says, Patrick Deneen says this. He says... <clears throat> America is a liberal, a progressive nation. Now, there's a conservatism part of 
pro, uh, progressivism and a very uh, liberal part of progressivism. The conservative part is that we can bend the environment to do our will. So if I was in, say, let's say Texas, and I said, you cannot bend the environment to do the will of humanity, uh, they'd probably be mad at me. If I said it here, you'd be like, yes, you should campaign for something. That's amazing. Yeah, we don't use the environment for what we want it to be. That's, that's imposing our, we're, we're all environmentalists here and for, the, for the most part here. But, but for a liberal progressive, it's our body. We can do what our, we want with our bodies to, we could bend our bodies to, to our will. And that's what we believe here in the Bay Area. Now, we don't touch the environment. We're not allowed to touch the environment that is like doing a disservice to the environment. But with our bodies, we can do anything we want with our bodies. So I know I'm speaking to this culture. I'm going to talk about the body this morning. Talk about what scripture says about the body. Um, I think that the church has got the body so wrong over the years, whether it's falling into the old heresy Gnosticism or falling into our very progressive um, form of Gnosticism, which is my body, my choice. Um, we have a lot to learn here. So I don't know if that was an intro, but there it is. I, I want, we're going to get into some stuff. So um, if you are scandalized, again, uh, you have Dale's email. First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, if you have a Bible. First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. I'm going to read this to you and pray. And today I want to talk about uh, sex and your body. Sex and your body. This is a very adult conversation, so hopefully there are no children in the room. If so, I'll pray, and then when I pray, just sneak them out of the room. First um, Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. Um, I have... Notice this is in quotes. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one in her body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with the price or at a price. Therefore, <clears throat> honor God with your bodies. This is God's word. Uh, let me pray. Lord, I pray for <clears throat> today and this week. Um, that we'd be given a, a spirit of wisdom and even this like um, this way to talk about this subject in, a, in, in, the, in the like ground zero of the sexual revolution um, that helps us uh, maybe forge a new revolution around sex and sexuality. I know, we know that this uh, narrative of the revolution, sexual revolution is not working. Um, it's literally killing people. And I pray that the church would be able to, to embody something holistically beautiful and different. I pray we get a vision of that, an imagination of that as we go through the series. I submit all of my capacities to you and ask that you would um, speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start this series with um, an apology. There are two definitions of an apology. 
Uh, the first is the sense of uh, like the modern colloquial sense to say sorry or to ask for forgiveness. So I want to do, I want to say sorry, that's an apology. But the second sense is the philosophical sense and that apology is a defense, as in apologetics. And I want to do, I want to apologize in both senses. First, I want to say sorry uh, that, about the way the church has taught on the body in sexuality that has been harmful and hurtful to so many people, both gay and straight. I think of being a youth pastor in the late 90s. I was a youth pastor in the late 90s. And the purity, purity culture that swept through much of the church doing like the, the promise ring thing. You guys remember the promise ring thing? The purity pledge, the I kiss dating goodbye stuff. Now, they had good intentions for sure, but they were steeped in a whole generation in... They steeped the whole generation in so much legalism that resulted in a lot of fear and shame around sex. For example, if you were a young man growing up at the church, in the church at that time, you were so afraid of getting a disease or getting a girl pregnant because the culture tried to place fear in young men around sex. If you were a young woman, you were afraid of shame. Having sex in youth group was shameful. Giving your body to some guy was made to be a shameful act, so there's a bunch of shame around sex if you grew up in the church as a young lady. And those who were gay in youth groups then, <clears throat> we didn't even really know what to do with those people, with those, I had several of them in my youth group. We had no idea to do, what to do with, with you. you had, we had no meaningful way to disciple you. Not that I heard of anyway. So I want to apologize. I want to apologize for the way the church has done this historically. Some churches have gotten it right, to be sure, but many I know did not get this right. But I also want to give an apologetic for sex in the human body. I want to give a, a historic Christian defense of the, the human vision, the biblical vision of human sexuality. Now, I know that we're in the Bay Area, and there are so many different beliefs in and around uh, in this room when we start talking about sex and sexuality. And the reason why I want to start in 1 Corinthians 6 is because not only is Corinth a lot like the San Francisco Bay Area, it was very progressive, it was entrepreneurial, it was the Bayside city of its day, but because when Paul went to teach on sex and sexuality in Corinth as a teacher of the way of Jesus, a lot of the pushback that he was getting from the congregation uh, was, <clears throat> was coming from this kind of collective cultural understanding of what sex meant in the culture of that day. So when he taught on sex and sexuality, they kept pushing back on him because the, the cultural milieu of, of Corinth was everyone kind of believed the same thing, whether they were in the church or outside of the church. So what we have in front of us when we're reading 1 Corinthians 6 is his response, his way of, of giving us a theology of our bodies and, our, and sexuality. So I want to look at what Paul says. Now we have to remember there was a story that Corinth uh, believed in and around sex, a story. We all live out of stories. I think this is the one thing postmodern philosophers got right. We are story-based creatures. Therefore, there was a story and a culture of sex and sexuality that was in and around forming people in the culture of that day. Now, if they were in the church or outside of the church, this was imbibed in the culture. And so when, when the way of Jesus comes to a culture... Uh, the way of Jesus, and this is what Paul was an expert at, he would read the culture and reorient people around the way of Jesus. And so he knew what the culture was saying about sex and sexuality, and so he had to reorient them around the way of Jesus. Now, the same thing applies to us today. We live in the Bay Area. We, we live in America. We live on the west coast of America. We live on the coasts. 
on one of the coasts. And because of that, we have imbibed a culture of sexuality. There's things that you believe about sexuality that you don't even know you believe about it. It just seeps into your bones because you live in California and specifically live in the Bay Area. Now, here's a story Corinth was told and lived out of. If you lived at that time, this is what you believed, inside the church or not inside the church. This is imbibed. Here's what they believed. Number one, they believed sex was about rights and freedom. They believed sex was about rights and freedom. Notice verse 12, it says, I have the right to do anything. Notice that these are in quotes. You know why they're in quotes? It's because this is what Paul was saying that they say. You say, I have the right to do anything. That's why they're in quotes. This was an actual maxim that was going around the church at the time. Paul would come and teach the way of Jesus and people would go, Psh, I, I have the right to do anything with my body. It's my body. I can do what I want with my body. This is what they were saying to Paul. I have the right to do anything for them was apparently going to, pro what this meant to them, by the way, is different than what it means to us. To them, it meant they had the right to go to prostitutes and saying that that conduct was harmless, especially men. Now, to us, this might seem very surprising. But remember that the social world of the ancient Corinthians differed greatly from ours. Prostitution was not only legal, it was widely accepted as a social convention. Not only was it accepted, it was, it was like expected. This is the way you worshiped. It's like the way that we go and watch a, a, a sports game or something. It's like, oh yeah, people do that. We have great sports teams here. In Corinth, yeah, we got great temples here. Of course you're going to go have sex in the temple. Like, it's just expected. The sexual latitude allowed men, by Greek and public opinion, um, the, the, the latitude sexually that was allowed by, by, by men at that time was virtually unrestricted. Sexual relations of males with both boys and harlots were generally tolerated. Therefore, Richard B. Hayes, in his socio-political commentary on 1 Corinthians, says... The Corinthian, quote, the Corinthian men who went to prostitutes were not asserting some new unheard of freedom. They were merely insisting on their right to continue participating in a pleasurable activity that was entirely normal within their own culture. So when we read this, we're like, this is so extreme. Like Paul's talking about prostitution. No, this was so normal in their culture. That, and, the, the, and their defense was this. I have the right to do that, you know. It's totally accepted in our culture to do this. They made sex about rights. They had the right to do with their own body whatever they wanted. Now, we'll get into more of this um, in a minute, but I'd like you to think about this right now. What does our culture say, or what do you think our culture says about how we think about our bodies? Think about that for a second. Can I use my body according to my rights today? Meaning, because I have the right and others have the right to do with it what they want, as long as there's consent, it should be okay, right? Now, I want you to hold on to that question. Let's keep going to Paul's line of thinking. Number two, they believe sex was about appetite. Another quote, you say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food. Again, in quotes, the ancient world regularly linked sexual appetite with an appetite for food. Their logic went like this. Stomach was the organ of nourishment. So food was created to meet the need of that organ. Duh. So food for the stomach, stomach for the food. Oh, that's a perfect marriage. The stomach is useless unless we eat, and the body, they thought, is useless unless we have sexual fulfillment. We have sexual need. We have sexual organs. They fit together. 
Sex is just one of the most, one of the very like important human appetites that needs fulfilling. And if you don't fulfill it, you will be repressed and repressed people are the worst. This is their line of thinking. Obviously it bleeds over into our line of thinking as well. Now, I think we get this. Most of our city lives this way, by the way. But here's why they believed they could fulfill the bodily appetite of sex as Christians. And this is where they get to the crux. This is, this is the crux of the matter. Number three, they believed the body didn't really matter. They believed that the body didn't really matter. This is what they said. God will destroy them both. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food. God will destroy them both. God, the body's going to go away anyways. We all know this. They believe that our bodies were just husks that will one day be shed when we get to heaven. The spirit counts for everything. The body counts for nothing. Nothing. Our bodies don't matter. Now, before I try to explain what Paul means, that our bodies are meant for something, specifically for the Lord, I think it would be good to share with you, as a way of naming the water that we swim in, our cultural story. What's the story that we live into today? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you like what I think are kind of like, what is the story as being told by our culture right now around sex and sexuality? And this is kind of, some of it is obvious to you, some of it is imbibed. You're like, oh, that actually is. I didn't have language for it, but that is what, our, what we believe. This is our story that we live into. In 2023, in California, especially in the Bay Area, humans are animals. Essentially, we are primates with incredible, incredible, incredible imaginations that had evolutionary time and chance on our side. Think Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari, if you know that book. And about our nature as humans, well, there is no meaning or purpose to the human body other than evolutionary function, the propagation of the species, which means the body is a morally neutral machine which, with which we can impose our will. Male and female, our sex, that's just plumbing. And thanks to technology, that can be changed if needed. Gender is a social construct, imaginary, developed by the patriarchy to oppress women. And sex is for pleasure. And if that's what gives you pleasure, it's just a biological release. And if you want to have babies, but only when you're ready. If you're ready, and however you want to go about doing that, do it. Love, well, love is just a feeling that you get from being with somebody that makes you happy or that you desire, and particularly sexually desire. Marriage, again, marriage is a social construct created for things like tribal alliance and commerce and patriarchy and the oppression of women and children, and monogamy isn't natural. The purpose of marriage now, today in our world, well, now that the earth is overpopulated and we know better than religion and tradition, marriage is for happiness. If you're not into it, great, marry whoever you love, as defined earlier as feeling happy or fulfilled with desire. This could be different sex, this could be same sex, it could be unisex, gender neutral, gender fluid, whatever, it's cool. And if you're not into marriage, no problem, there are plenty of other options for your sexuality. Divorce, well, divorce is the enlightened decision for two people who are no longer compatible because, again, the point is happiness. So if you're not happy in marriage, meaning you don't feel good about each other anymore, then move on. Start over because you have to be true to yourself. What about the Bible and, and, the, and the Bible's authority? Well, the Bible is a collection of human writings with some great ideas in it, but it's also full of sexism and racism and patriarchal oppression and anti-erotic ideas about sex, etc. And all forms of external authority are oppressive if they are imposed on you by someone else a.k.a. keep your laws off my body, be it a politician, a pastor, or a parent, and repressive if they are imposed by yourself. 
if they keep you from happiness. The overall meaning of life in this story, well, technically there is none. Life is a glorious, or not so glorious, depending on how much money you have, accident. There is no creator, which means there is no creation, only nature, which means there's no design, only tooth and claw. So feel free to come up with meaning for your life. Ideally, something to do with progress, since that, that ties in with the evolutionary theory. But we don't need God to progress as a species. In fact, God and the people who believe in him are holding us back from true enlightenment. And if you can't come up with a cause to give your life to, that's okay too. Just be happy. If not, then smoke cannabis. Drink artisan cocktails. Try ayahuasca. Make some money. Have some sex. Enjoy your travels. And post it on Instagram. And be kind to each other because this is the only planet we have until we figure something else out. And we're still working on that. But we haven't worked on that. We haven't figured that one out yet. This is our story. This is the story that you hear all week long. It's a story that is woven into your startups, into your financial companies. It's a story you get from Cal or Stanford, the story you get from Netflix or the New York Times, or posts on your Instagram feeds, movies that you watch, even the conversations that you have at this church are imbibed with this story. And it's easy to, to assume that this story is reality. And if it feels almost impossible to resist it, either in parts or whole, it's because it is our story. But this story is a story. It's a certain reading of data points of science and history and religion and the human experience. And I would say, for the most part, this story isn't working. Now, there are all kinds of ways I can show you that this story isn't working. Take depression rates, for example, but, but I want to give you one specific example. And it's a book. It's this book, actually. It's The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. This book is so good. It's, she's not a Christian. This book is not a Christian book. I actually do not recommend it. I'll read it for you. You don't have to read it. <laughs> she's a feminist. And it, by the way, I'm, I'm being serious. Unless you are, come talk to me afterwards, but I probably, probably don't read this book. She's a feminist and a liberal, but a post-liberal. That is, she was a feminist and very progressive liberal, but those worldviews are not working in her opinion. She has worked in a rape clinic and has seen firsthand how the stories around the sexual revolution of the last 60 years is not working. And not only is it not working, she says it's wrong. And not only is it wrong, she says it's harmful. Now, there are too many good quotes to choose just one. But in her book, she talks about how sex has been disenchanted. It's been stripped of any value or meaning unless the person having sex chooses to add meaning to it. And this is fundamentally wrong, and we know it intuitively, she says. She then uses all kinds of wonderful logic, insanely wonderful logic to dismantle the progressive ideology around sex and the liberal feminist, though she is still a feminist. She dismantles liberal feminist arguments around women's liberation. She says that's actually a fallacy. The sexual revolution did not liberate women. Instead of quoting from her book, let me just read to you her chapter titles. Again, this woman is not a Christian, and she is, was a very progressive liberal feminist. Here's her chapter titles. Chapter one, sex must be taken seriously. Chapter two, men and women are different. Chapter three, some desires are bad. Chapter four, loveless sex is not empowering. Chapter five, consent is not enough. Chapter six, violence is not love. Speaking of the BDSM community, if you know what that is. Chapter seven, people are not products. Chapter 8, marriage is good. And conclusion, listen to your mother. <laughs> okay, I lied. One quote. <clears throat> 
she, she just shares, this is really a sad part of the book. Um, it like turns my stomach when I, when I read it the first time. But she, she quotes a, a young woman who had sex with someone that was, was casual and consensual, but she felt horrible afterwards. And she writes that she feels horrible. And so, um, and Louise Perry, she, she says, um, oh, the girl feels bad, and she says to herself, well, it's, it's just sex anyways, right? Just sex. That's what I have to tell myself. It's just sex. Quote, it's just sex summarizes the sexual disenchantment idea perfectly. This young woman wasn't beaten. She didn't get pregnant. She actually quite liked the young man she had sex with, at least at first. So why did she experience this sexual encounter as such a big deal? Because sexual disenchantment isn't actually true, and we all know it including the liberal feminists who expend so much energy on arguing, for instance, that sex work is work. You can tell me because when it became clear that Henry, that Harvey Weinstein had been offering women career opportunities in exchange for sexual favors, these same liberal feminists immediately condemned him, not only for the violence and threats he had used in the course of committing his crimes, but also for requesting sexual favors from his subordinates in the first place. There was an intuitive recognition that asking for sex from an employee is not all the same as asking them to do overtime or make coffee. I've made plenty of coffees for various employees in the past, despite the fact of, that coffee making wasn't included in my job description, and I'm not sure most readers will have done this. I, I'm sure most readers will have done the same. But while it might sometimes be annoying to receive this request, no worker who makes coffee for their boss will expect to end up dependent on drugs or alcohol as a consequence. No one will expect to become pregnant or acquire disease that causes infertility. No one will expect to suffer from PTSD and other mental illness. No one will expect to become incapable of having healthy, intimate relationships for the rest of her life. Everyone knows that having sex is not the same thing as making coffee. And when an ideology of sexual disenchantment demands that we pretend otherwise, the result can be a distressing form of cognitive dissonance. This book is insane. It is these kind of books that come out that prove and show that the progressive story isn't working. People brave enough to write books like this, and there are several books like this, brave enough to say, this isn't working. That girl that had casual sex and woke up with a cognitive dissonance because what she experienced in her body and what she thought to be true of the progressive story were not aligning. This is the story that we live in. And the story isn't working. But what's God's story? What is the story of God? God's story about our bodies and sex goes something like this. Here's the story, and I want to tell it to you. And don't tune out because some of you think, oh, I know the story. But I want you to listen. Listen again if you heard it a hundred times. We are created in the image of God. Let me quote Jesus to keep it very simple. Matthew 19. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female, he said. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus says, our bodies were made by the creator God in the beginning, male and female. Sex was created in the beginning to be about the one flesh union of husband and wife. Both of these have a purpose, and both of these tell a story. Therefore, Our bodies and our sex are teleological and theological. That's that's basically the thesis of what I'll talk about the next three teachings. Our bodies and sex are teleological and theological. 
They're teleological, and our bodies and our sex have meaning and purpose and design given to it by God. This woman here who wrote this book believes this but doesn't know the teleological. She has to, she has to fall back on evolution. She just has to. She has no framework for it. So me and my, another pastor on staff are reading this together, and we're just yelling at each other over text. Like, she's so close. She just, just needs to. There is a teleological reason for sex. There is a meaning that behind it. And theological. Our bodies and sex tell a story of who God is and what God is like. Our bodies tell a story of who God is. You know that? Our bodies tell a story of what God is like. Now, for most of you, you've heard what the scriptures say about sex in our bodies, but you have not heard the why behind it. You have heard the what, that God made us male and female. Sex is to be a one flesh union between husband and wife for life. You've heard that probably growing up. That is the what. What is the why? The why are the teleological and theological aspects of our bodies. Because when purpose is not known, abuse is inevitable. When a purpose isn't known for something, you're going to abuse that thing. So I'm going to try to do my best to explain. But as I do, I want you to realize that a lot of this Bible is mystical. Did you know that? Mystical. This is a mystical book. And the union that you have with God is mystical. It's a mystery. Some of it is made known in Christ, but some of it is still a mystery. So this is a bit mystical, and I want you to listen knowing that. Here it is. First off, you are your body. You don't have a body. You are a body. Now you're thinking, well, didn't C.S. Lewis say that you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body? No, he never said that. He actually never said that. It's attributed to him. It's not true. He wouldn't say that because he had a really good theology. The fact is, you are a soul and you are a body, and these two things are connected. If they are ever not connected, we call that death. I know you want to upload your consciousness to the cloud, or you're trying to invest in companies that are doing that, but Christian teaching says, and common knowledge and science says, the separation of your soul and your body is death. Now, there is coming a day when Jesus will unite all dead bodies that are in Christ, all dead souls, and what's called the resurrection of the dead. So the soul and body are separated in death, and Jesus will reunite them in the end. We call this the resurrection of the dead, meaning you will get your body back. When you get to heaven, you don't get this like a, a new body that looks like the rock or something. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> if you're like, I cannot wait to shed this body, this body is, I can't wait, and get a new body, you don't get a new body, you get a renewed body. A renew, your body, you will look like you in heaven. How old? I have no idea. Hopefully early 30s or maybe late 20s, depending on <laughs> when you peak. Whenever you peak, I don't know, hopefully then. But you will have your body in heaven, your body. Jesus came back and resurrected in his body. Yeah, he could do some cool new things like walk through walls and disappear, but he still ate. He said, touch, I'm, I'm flesh. Okay, that's a whole different story. I mean, sermon, by the way, I can't get into that. But here's the point. You are your body and your body matters. You are your body, and your body matters. That's why if someone was to break your arm in rage, it's not property damage, it's personal assault. The, your body is you. Now, our bodies are designed by God to make visible what is invisible, to make visible the spiritual life and the divine. This is the idea of the imago Dei, the Latin phrase, the image of God. We are created to image God. Genesis 126. 
Then God said, let us, there's so, that, that word us, us is so pregnant, by the way. It's, it's so full of meaning. Uh, again, another sermon. Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Why is that last bit important to be made in the image of God? Male and female, the scriptures say. This is really important. He created them to image him, male and female. Why? Because of this. Genesis 2.24 and Ephesians 5. These two, these two verses are like, are everything in this subject. Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man, marriage, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Two becoming one flesh. And then this is what Paul, Paul takes this teaching in Christ and expounds on the mystery, the mystical side of it, and he says this. This is a profound mystery. Marriage? No, 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 no. Oh, I'm not talking about marriage anymore. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Wait, what? I thought you were talking about marriage. No, I'm talking about Christ and the church. He goes from marriage, marriage, husband and wife, male, female, united in marriage together, to Christ and the church. How does he do that? Why does he do that? These two verses are the most significant, crucial, and meaningful verses if you want to know the why as male and female. Why were we created as male and female? And the how, who are we as male and female? And why does this tell the story of who God is? God exists forever in an external exchange of love. If you don't believe me, read uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17. The Trinity, external exchange of love. And the whole thing, the whole gospel is Jesus dying on a cross to bring us into this, this, into this, in this union. This is why Christ died, to bring us, to cleanse us from our sins, to bring us in union with God. God is an infinite, in, is in infinite communion of persons experiencing eternal love relationship. And then he creates us out of this for one reason, to share that eternal relationship of love with us. Not to receive it. He didn't create us so he can get love. He already has love. He's eternal love, community of eternal love. He creates it to express love, to share love. This is what makes the gospel good news. At the center of ultimate reality, there is a real love that corresponds to the deep longing of every human's heart, and that love is God's free gift to us through Jesus. Now, God wants to love us, and indeed created the world in such a way as to share and experience that love. But something happened, we call this Genesis chapter three, the fall, and this love story takes a turn. And from that point on, God is after to reclaim and redeem. Actually, the Bible says, to marry us. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God wants to marry us. Marriage is so central to the Bible. It's so important to understand the story of the Bible to understand marriage. The Bible begins in Genesis with the marriage, Adam and Eve. The Bible ends in marriage, in Revelation, the marriage of Christ and the church. Actually, in Hebrew, uh, uh, the heavens and the earth are like male and female, and they'll be reunited in the New Jerusalem. Heaven and earth come together like a marriage of heaven and earth. All throughout the middle, from the beginning, the beginning we find marriage, the end we find marriage, and all in the middle, God is, God is trying to marry us. That's one way you can summarize the Bible. What's the Bible? It's, the Bible. it's about a marriage that goes wrong and a marriage that ends with Christ in the church and everywhere in the middle, God's trying to marry us. 
Let me give you some examples. Isaiah 62, 5. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your maker marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Ezekiel 16, 7, and 8. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breast had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. That's very erotic language, by the way. And it's all over the Old Testament. Now, this is where it gets really important. Pay attention. Why is God always the husband and humanity is always the bride? Why is God always male in these metaphors and humanity is female? Does gender matter? Does sex, male and female, matter here? Some might say this is because of the patriarchy. This is very patriarchal language. This is what's wrong with the Bible. And that's why God is male, and that's why God's the bridegroom. But what if that isn't true? What if there's something deeper going on? What if there's something more mystical going on here? Now, keep what I'm about to share squarely in biology for a moment. The reason why humanity is the bride in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is because humanity is first receptive to the love of God. We first receive the love of God, 1 John 4.10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us. Another way to think about it is this. God created the human senses to be all inputs and God himself being the output. Listen, the woman's body primarily tells a story of receiving divine love, while a man's body primarily tells a story of offering that love, of pouring love out. It's the husband. Who, give, who gives seed and inseminates. It's the bride who receives seed and conceives new life. Mary, the mother of Jesus, illuminates the theology of a woman's body. In her, a woman's body has literally become the dwelling place of the Most High. Heaven on earth in her womb. Now, the essential meaning of se sexual difference, male and female, matter. Male and female matter, and the failure to recognize that will mess up both the telos and the theology of our bodies and what our bodies ultimately point towards. Think of it this way. A man's body does not make sense by itself, nor does a woman's body. But it's seen in the light of each other. Sexual difference reveals God's unmistakable plan that man and woman are meant to be a gift to one another. Let's be more specific. A man's body is incomplete in all systems but one, and a, woman's, a man's body is complete in all systems but one, and a woman's body is complete in all systems but one. And those, re, those receptive systems, the reproductive systems, only function in union with each other. I'll, be, I'll click in and get a little bit more specific. If Adam and Eve stood right by each other before Genesis 3, and they saw each other naked and unashamed, they would have seen they were the same, and they have all the same parts. They have a head, they have ears, eyes, hands, arms, legs, the exact same parts except for two. And those two parts fit together. The sex of our bodies, male and female, tell that story. Now, of course, there's all kinds of ways this is broken by Genesis 3 and the fall. 
But Jesus does not accept the normalization of our fallen humanity. His redemption is all about getting us back to the way we were created, whole, connected, in union with God. For example, when Jesus teaches on divorce, Jesus says, yeah, Moses gave you a certificate of divorce because your hearts were hard, but the creator, God, didn't make it that way. There's only one way to be divorced, and that's sexual immorality, because there's something that sex does to break the covenant. Sexual immorality does that breaks the covenant. But other than that, no divorce. Wait, no divorce? No, Moses did that, but it was not right. Jesus is bringing everything back to created order. Not to review. God has created your body as you, and your body matters to who you are. God has created us, male and female, to show what he is like, and sex between male and female in a committed marriage is an icon that points to the union that we have with God now through Jesus and will ultimately have with him in heaven when, when heaven and earth unite. You know what an icon is, right? An icon is something you look past to see the heavens. An icon is never meant to be the thing you worship. That was never, iconography was never meant like that in, the, in, um, in church history. Icon, it, got, it got that way, it got funky that way, but iconography was made so that you peer through it to the divine. It points to something great. So in iconography, things are like embellished, like, like the saints are embellished in like, this is, this is what they were known for, so that it points, it's like a Hebrews chapter 12 thing, it points to, to God, that God did this in them. Sex is an icon. It points beyond itself to something greater. And this greater thing, this, this story, is told with our bodies. To mess with this theology is to mess with many more theologies. It's like an, an ecosystem. If you mess with one part, you mess up a lot of other parts. This is why we cannot mess with what scriptures teach about sexuality. The secular story we are told, when we honestly boil it down, is that our body doesn't matter. What matters is how we feel in our bodies. Nancy Piercy, under uh, the secular postmodern story, she says this. Nancy Piercy's book, is, it's, it's incredible. Love Thy Body. I recommend that one to you. She says this. The body is not seen as having any purpose or telos in the, in, the, in the postmodern story. It is merely a collection of physical systems, muscles, bones, organs, and cells, providing no clue to who you are, who we are, or how we should live. Our physical traits give no signposts for the, for the right to deploy our sexuality. And if the meaning of our sexuality is not something we derive from the body, then it becomes something we impose on the body. It's a social construction. Now, you may be thinking, that's cool, Dave. You can keep your mystic thoughts. I'll just do whatever I want with my body. But I like it. You can, but like I said, it's not working. This project... This, this progressive project that we're living under, the sexual revolution that started in San Francisco 60 years ago is not working. In her book, Sexual Authenticity, Melinda Selmas, who, is, who was a bisexual um, that turned lesbian because she really hated men's bodies, turned, uh, she was an atheist, and then someone gave her a copy of one of Merton, Thomas Merton's books, and she became a Christian. And she wrote this book, and it's, uh, it's really, really good. She says this. Again, this is a little explicit, but I think it's really important. Underneath the pop and fizzle of sexological enthusiasm lies a fundamental despair, not necessarily about life itself, but about the body. This seems counterintuitive. Surely, the sexual revolution is about the celebration of the body over and against the pretense that love ends below the neck. Yet, 
Beneath all the pageantry of free sex and self-love, there is a fundamental belief that the body doesn't mean anything, that it is insignificant in a literal sense, signifying nothing. You can do anything you like with it. You can pleasure it with a vacuum cleaner or get a drunken stranger in an alleyway to whip it. You can give it to anyone for any reason. It's just a sort of wet machine, a tool that you can exchange for, you can use in exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. In order to believe this, you must either accept A, that your body is not you, it's just a shell or a juicy robot that the real you, that disembodied ghost, controls, or B, that there is no such thing as human value or dignity. It's just a nice pretense that we make because we are terrified of the senseless and nihilistic universe. Honestly, Christianity, which has always been accused of putting God before man, stands alone against the host of modern philosophies declaring that man is a unified, complete being composed of both mind with the free will and the body, all of which has dignity and meaning. At the heart of the modern philosophical project is the attempt to understand human existence without reference to God. You are created by God, and your body is in reference to him, made male or female in order to point to the ultimate union that God has and God desires to have with us. Now, I'll close going back to this. For this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. The union of our bodies carry within them a greater, more profound story of the union of us and God. Male and female coming together in sex in the context of covenantal marriage tells the story of God. Sex is an icon. It points beyond itself. We've made it an idol. We've made it a God to worship, and it has marred and destroyed the thing it was supposed to point toward. So the invitation today as we begin this like journey in this conversation is to begin to smash the idols, the idols of sexuality, and begin to look at the real thing, our union with God. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, I imagine that um, this is a, this might be a lot, I don't know. But, but I want us as followers of your way, Jesus, to understand the profound mystery that we have carried in our bodies. I pray for marriages in this room that when Paul talks about marriage, he cannot help but get to Jesus in the church. He cannot help but say, well, marriage is one thing, but it points to a greater thing. I pray that our marriages would point to the greater thing, God. I pray that our maleness and femaleness would point to the, to the greater thing, our union with God. And I pray that our bodies, having this teleological aim and theological aim, would be such a healing balm for a world that is so confused around this topic. Come, Holy Spirit. We need your healing. We need your power. In Jesus' name.